welcome to From the Library with Love, a podcast for anyone whose life has been changed by reading. Today, it's my enormous privilege to introduce a chat that I had with Heather Morris. Now, Heather is the author of international best-selling novel, The Tattooist of Auschwitz, which has sold over 8 million copies, been published in 49 countries and spawned a new genre of Holocaust books. A major TV multi-part drama series based on The Tattooist is also in production. Heather's gone from being, in her words, a regular granny to a multi-million selling author. In this fascinatingly frank interview, Heather explains how the art of active listening helped her unlock a decades-old secret. There is no point in trying to get somebody who's trying to tell you something which is painful or traumatic uh, if you're in a setting with other people. That's not going to happen. It's one of the reasons why I, I think you know, therapists sit one-on-one. But, of course, group therapy is a different thing again, and I'm, I'm not going to get caught up in that. But for me, active listening involves more than just using your ears. It involves observing the person you're with as well. And, again, you do not need to be trained or have any special skill. And when you're getting someone's story in particular that is historic, What you need to be just looking for is looking for signs of them getting distressed, for one thing, but not automatically shutting them down when that happens. Because in getting distressed, in some ways, that is what the person uh, well mostly gets help with then. That is when they're actually going through that process of uh, possibly being cathartic for them and then releasing. Mm. For me, I was taught, as I said in the book, by my great-grandfather, who just simply said when... I would say to him, he'd say to me, what do you hear? And I would say nothing. And he said, well, that's, that's rubbish. There is noise around you. I'm not just talking about human voices, but listen to what's around you from the simplest thing, from whose tractor it is down the road. Is it your tractor or is it the neighbor's tractor? Silly things. And when you do just listen and open your eyes as well, then you can actually, you hear what's being said and you hear the meaning behind it. You hear the emotion behind it more than anything. And do you think, why do you feel, particularly in the West, I think we're very disconnected from missing. And I was mulling this over why that is. And I think it's because of this proliferation of social media and bloggers. <laughs> we're all trained to, or to, to want to express our opinion, but obviously conversations reciprocal. So we're not often... We're losing that disassociation with our, it's good to listen as well as just offer an opinion. Everybody seems to feel they have a, almost a God-given right to offer an opinion up and be yep. heard instead of hearing, I think. Is that a generational thing or is it a geographical thing? Where? What's your viewpoint on that? Yeah, I'm sounding like an old fuddy-duddy here. I think it is getting worse because of the whole social media thing. You know, my children, if they send me a text message I will reply once, and if it requires anything more than that, they know, don't send mum another follow-up to it. Pick up the phone and ring her. You know, talk to me. But the thing about getting story from people is it's actually it's not a conversation as such. You're not there to give your opinion. You're not there to, to re- remind someone that it's happened to you, what they're describing, or somebody else. Wow. That's not what active listening is. It, it is not... Most of the time, it is not there for you to give an opinion. Yeah. It is just for you to listen. It's, and if you're asked for an opinion, by all means, offer it. And here's the other thing, too, and, and I fall into this trap all the time. 
sometimes you can be tempted if somebody asks your opinion to actually come up with a response and instead of saying, look, I actually don't know. Yeah, it's okay not to. And it's okay not to know everything. And I, I'm so fascinated by your relationship with, and I, excuse me if I correct to uh, pronounce this wrong, but it's Lale, isn't it? Lale, yes. Lale, yeah. Your relationship with Lale and the way that you went quite open-mindedly to a, to a place to, to have a conversation with a man for whom somebody had said to you, oh, you're looking for stories. This man has a story to tell. And you knew nothing about him. You went completely, you know, cold, as it were. And, and over months and years, this story unfolded and you absorbed it. it. It was obviously life-changing for both of you. You had no idea at that point in time where this journey would take you, did you? When you knocked on that door, unassuming door and it unfolded, I get tingles down my spine when I think about that. How do you feel yeah. looking back on that now? That if you hadn't have gone, had you not, had you said, oh, well, you know what, I'm too busy or I don't know what the story's about, I just won't bother. But you did. And look- oh, Well, I would probably be sitting in my own home knitting something for another grandchild and watching daytime television, um, which would have bored me stupid. Mm. I actually didn't know for months and months and months, Kate, if there was going to be a story from really? Lully. He could not tell a vignette or a storyline from beginning to end, ever. It was all piecemeal. There was no cohesion to a lot of what he was telling me. Yeah. It was just a matter of you know, hearing these things and snippets and thinking, I'd like to know more about that. But, you know, I never interrupted him when he was saying something. I would come back to him. And one of the things I learned with Lully in particular, not so much the girls, they're, they're, they're different, which I'm not sure if that's a gender thing or what, but with him, that if he told me something and I never fully got it, as I say, I didn't interrupt him, but I could go back to him a week later and say to him, now, listen, you told me about blah, blah. Can you tell me some more? Now, when I said that back to him, you'd see his brain go, okay, I've already told her that. I'm happy to say some more. But if I asked him about something that I had researched and he had not mentioned, he, didn't, he wouldn't go there. He would really? just go, well, you go back to your research. But if I phrased it to him, you told me about this. And he'd go, oh, yes, okay, I now have permission. Yeah. So, it, look, kind of with him, there was, there they weren't games. I wasn't playing games with him. I just needed to have prompts and strategies to help him reveal more. Yeah. And, of course, that only came once he really got to know me and got to know my family and, and got to trust me. Because you're so right, I think the process of hearing or telling stories is not linear, is it? it it's almost like that unfiltered gush, isn't it? That, that, and it doesn't come out with the beginning and middle and end. So no. it takes somebody special to sit and filter through that and put, it's like doing a big jigsaw puzzle almost, isn't it, I think? Is that how you felt about it? Or or you just, look, I'm here, I'm in it for the long haul, I'm going to sit and I'm going to listen to the fragments of this story, and I know there's a story here, but I have to listen to everything in order to make sense of it all. Yes. And then just race home and, and scribble down notes. But um, it wasn't even a matter of being there for the long haul with them. It was our friendship started to develop, and I just wanted him in my life. And yet we're talking about nearly 20 years ago. Wow. So for me, it was about having him in my life and in my family's life. And if anything came of it, well, that was a bonus. And here's an interesting thing. This just happened to me last night. I was talking to this woman after I'd had a talk there. And she said to me that she 
also was talking about the act of listening. I was there to talk about three sisters, not this. And she told me that she's a paediatric nurse and how her colleagues, she said, when we first get a patient on the ward, she said, said her colleagues often say to her, she goes in there to talk to the patient and the parents of them, because more often than not, you're talking to the parents, but you're engaging with the, with the child. And she said, I always go in there with no paperwork. And I go in there and introduce myself and I ask them their name and I ask them details. She said, and I don't record it in, at all. And when I leave, I go out and she said, so many of my colleagues say, how can you do that? How can you remember their phone number? How can you remember their address? And she said, well, I don't care if I don't remember it. I was introducing myself to them. I was getting to know them, not the statistics of who they are. Right, right. Good girl. You, you've, yeah. you've nailed it. Yeah. That's what's going to make you the ideal paediatric nurse. Because you have the, they know they have your undivided attention. You're not putting barriers up with clipboards and pens and goodness knows what else. You're there listening wholeheartedly. Yeah. So do you feel that there, because what I'd like people to get out of this article is, I'm not saying everybody has a story like Lully, of course they don't, but everybody that lived through the war does have a story to tell. And, and, and nine times out of 10, most people say, well, I'm only ordinary. And then a lot of times yeah. you will find that their stories are actually extraordinary. How I know you, you wrote a great chapter in your book about tips, you know, how to um, listen actively so that you can encourage those stories out. Do you feel that that people can get a lot out of that, that, that everybody within their own family, um, if they're lucky enough to have a grandparent or parent or whatever alive, that there are so many stories out there untold? You know, you, you think of rich, rich family histories. Well, these people have lived lives. They've, they've, they've lived for 50, 60, 70 years. They haven't been living in a vacuum. You know, the, the reason why we decided to write this book or came about from a very casual conversation. I was in this hotel dingy bar with my publisher and we'd been there listening and I'd been listening to uh, the friends and neighbours of Silkers. It was when I was there doing research for Silkers' book. And, and Margaret, my publisher who was with me, made a comment about how I was sitting there talking to these people. I never spoke Slovakian. They never spoke English. I had two translators there who were fielding the, the questions and then they were writing things down. And she was just, how did these people who never knew me, who had come to talk to me, just unload so much? And I said, well, because I was listening to them, not doing anything else. It was not that distraction. And it then it occurred to me the number of times when I have been in doing talks in all countries, people who come up to me afterwards and they say to me, why did I have to learn so much about my mother at her funeral? Why did I not know about my brother's life after we left home as kids from his friends at his funeral? Oh. And I started thinking about it too about the, the handful of close families that, that I've lost. And there were people there sharing their stories that I'd never heard. And this was my mother. This was my brother. Mm. And so that, that's when I sort of said, yeah, we do not open our own you know, ears and eyes to our, the people that matter the most in our lives, our immediate family. And so, you know, you, you're absolutely right. I, I, I heard a very interesting once at a funeral I went to of an old older lady um, who I'd interviewed years ago and when I came out of the funeral her son came up to me and he said it's a little bit like he said I've learned things about my mother 
today that I didn't know before. And he said, isn't it? He, he said, I think of it as like when an old person dies, it's like a library burning down. And yeah. I really was struck by yeah. that. Yeah. I really was struck. It absolutely left me gobsmacked. So I thought, how true. Like all those stories are like books on a shelf. And yeah. you don't get them out and read them. And all that knowledge, information and power is gone forever, indelibly. So, yeah. so the rewards of, of capturing those stories are, are immense. Do you think that this is something, because obviously you've honed your skills over years and, and I suspect it comes naturally to you which is why you were able to capture Lali's story in the first place but for other people wanting to to uncover relative stories this isn't something you know if you're learning truly learning active listening it can take a long while do you think to to, to kind of master that art as it were or learn that fundamental skill of sitting and not offering opinions and, and, and listening intently and wholeheartedly yeah, look, I don't think it's easy. It's not going to come easy, given that we've probably already spent sort of a lifetime to this point not doing that, mm. but, but adding our two bobs worth, as we tend to say. Um, and it really is a matter of finding something in that person's life which may seem insignificant to you. And I've been looking at the pictures behind your wall. I wish I could see them better, because what I would do is hone in on one of them and, and just, just say to you, tell me the story behind that uh, they they look like they're covers, film covers or posters or uh, well, they're book book covers. They're book covers, mm -hmm. uh, and so you, you would pick something in their home that has been there all your life. Now, my grandmother, she had the three flying ducks on her wall. <laughs> I just know that every time I went into her lounge room, my eyes immediately went to those three flying ducks. She had other things in her house too, but the other things I remember now, I never ever asked her where she got them, why they were important to hang on her wall when she's putting pictures of grandchildren, other things all around them. They never got moved. I mm. saw some other things get moved. So what was important about those three flying ducks? I bet there was a story there and I never asked it. How interesting. But that's the sort of thing you hone in on. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be three flying ducks. It can be a photo that's very old and it's a, it's a matter of just saying, can you remember where that photo was taken? You bet they'll remember. Can you remember who you were with? I bet they remember. So symbols, items, things that evoke the past, mm -hmm. I guess are, all have contain their own stories, don't they? So that's, that's your in. Yeah. yeah, that's your access in. That's your in. And going back to you and, and Lully and, and the way that the story unfolded, and how long did it, would you say it took before he began to trust you enough for the, for the story to truly begin to emerge? Uh, it was about five months, and I know that because I actually, funny enough, and I forgot I'd done this, I only found it, um, gosh, after the book came out, I'd actually been going home and, and making a set up a little spreadsheet each time I met him, and I forgot all about it. I found it after sort of like about 15 years, and I'd written down the date when I was with him, I'd written down only about two bullet point things of what he particularly talked about that I remembered. Um, I had been charting those things more detail on another document. I also wrote down what his mood was like, mm. and I wrote down what my mood was like after I left him. Oh, interesting. And, and I'd been keeping that and forgot all about it until I discovered it. So I know it was about five months after I'd been uh, seeing him two to three times a week. Wow. And uh, it, it was just that, that thing of having finally taken him home to meet my family and having my family tell him who I was. 
that he thought it was hilarious to hear what a lousy cook I was and that he was better off that my husband had cooked the dinner that night and um, all these faults of mine that the kids decided to share with him and he thought that was hilarious. <laughs> but, it, but see, he was not known to me. If this is your family member, they're going to know what your faults are, so you don't have to get that trust. Yeah. You just have to show a way of being able to earn it for them to actually go deeper than the superficial stories. Yeah, my great grandfather was uh, was someone who shared with me his life from when he was a little boy. You know, in the Boer War, he was sixteen when he got sent from New Zealand to fight in the Boer War in South Africa, and he had never spoken to any other family member about that. My brothers now are insanely jealous. They said, "You know all these stories about Gramps," and I said, "Well, yeah, because you know he told me." Do you think you were born that way, Heather, or do you think that? sitting at your grandfather's knee taught you that or was it a combination of the two I mean we're all born with a gift aren't we but do you think this was your gift that you were born with or did he hone that in you product of my time you know we were to be seen and not heard as children and I just never accepted that um and I look I was isolated on on a farmland New Zealand with four brothers and just always been someone who wanted to make up stories so I would make them up nobody told them to me because nobody would tell me anything in my family you know, they had to go and eavesdrop at the door and get smacked around the head for being caught and uh, the favorite phrase my family used to call me was actually I was a bullshit artist said, well, you, you won't tell me anything so I've got to make it up so you got a strong creative streak in you anyway then didn't you I like that. yeah I never wrote it down though but I used to try and convince them that you know the cows out in the paddock actually were talking to me about something and I felt quite convinced of things I was saying. So you've always been a storyteller that much is true. Or a bullshit artist which you want to do. I lied between the two. Yeah. <laughs> so w- with learning again, with learning again how, um, what was the biggest sort of challenge I suppose then of sitting with him you know week after week listening to these stories was what was the challenge for you where was where was the the point where you came up against something you just thought I'm really struggling with this or was it not like that was it was it just sort of the case that it blowed out and you you couldn't wait to get started writing the story I think what I'm referencing here Heather is because I noticed he said that that he chose you because you weren't Jewish and you knew nothing about the Holocaust so I'm thinking God from you going from knowing nothing about the Holocaust to literally by the sounds of it sort of like a crash course you had to become immersed in it and that must have been difficult to take on board the, the intensity of that. How did you find yeah. that? Look, the first challenge every time I was with him, Kate, was to get down the cup of lukewarm, very weak coffee that I drank. Once I got past that, you never knew what you were going to get with him. And this is it. So sometimes I'd go there and all he wanted to do was go for a walk with the dogs and, and talk about whatever sport was on. We said, hey, that's fine. But when he did want to talk, and I always knew because I could get his mood as soon as I arrived, no doubt there were many, many times he ended up having to comfort me. And, and he, I think he, he actually not enjoyed it. But for him, being able to get me to a point where I was clearly getting upset at what I was hearing, and then he'd look at me and go, hey, I'm alive. I'm here. I'm here. They're not. And that's something I've heard from many Holocaust survivors. I'm here. They're not. That don't, you don't get, and I knew this from, from my work in the hospital, that um, I had no right to ever try and own any part of his pain or trauma or guilt. Never. It's never yours to take away from them. 
yes, it can transfer to you, and that's what happens. It transfers, lands on your shoulders, but you can't own it. So you've got to find a strategy to say, not mine. I can only help him by continuing to sit and listen and let him yeah. talk. Uh, so the, the things that when I think about them, and they're not, it's not hard for me to recall them, the things which were most painful for him, the things that broke him, the things that sent him back in time, physically in front of me, he would glaze over and he was no longer in the room with me. He was back in 1942, 43. We're talking about Silka, of course, talking about Gita. Um, whenever he would have a memory of his family and he'd want to talk about his family. I think they were the hardest for me to hear. Uh, they were the most distressing. He never knew that his parents were brought to Auschwitz. I found that out after he died, that they were brought there, but they were killed immediately. Um, I'm kind of glad he didn't know that. If he thought that they had been there right there and, and just turned to the left when he had people coming to him at the right, yeah. it would have been a very difficult thing for him to try and kind of process or anyone want to understand. Um, you know, he, he would get emotional when talking about Mengele. Uh, he, he shocked and horrified him beyond anything he could ever comprehend. But some of the other things that went on there, he could be quite clinical and factual about without getting emotional. For me, you know, the hardest part of his book, if I ever am asked to read something, I think about it and I think, this is what I want to read, but it's not a really important part of his story for readers, but it is for me. The most, well, emotionally uh, draining thing I can read in his story is that tiny little scene when he returned home to Krompaki and he found his sister alive. Wow. Uh, I can still right now just think about him, him when he's saying it. And, yeah. Because that, there's that hope. Break him. hope springs for the first time, do you feel? Because there was this yeah. afterlife it was like to it. Three years of, of horror. Uh, and here I have someone, not knowing if he had anyone incredible and, you can, and 70 years later it still smacked him around really and and he and he I suppose he didn't find you you found each other had he told that story in its entirety before you or had he just been that you know he'd gone to Australia he'd got a life and worked and lived and you know but but towards the end of his life he thought now is the time how what was the process behind that I was very clear um Gita died Gita um, would not let him talk about it. Right. She had become a closed book. I wouldn't even talk to their own child about it. And for her, the only way she could deal with it and live with it was to just right. yeah, so far bury it. Now, he always wanted to talk about it. What was, it used to be hilarious. He used to take me sometimes. He had these three friends. They were also had been in the camps. They were other um, Jewish men in, in Melbourne. And these four old buggers as we call them, they used to get together every Friday uh, for morning tea. Uh, and they would just sit around and excuse the phrase, but they would just sit around and bullshit. But you know, it, it was bullshit, but it was all wrapped up in, in their past. Mm, mm. And a couple of times, or more than that, several times he would take me along because they, they never minded having a, a girlie there with them. And here these, that's when these blokes would talk. And it was just an amazing thing. I could just sit back there and I was no longer with them. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a, those men talked with themselves. 
I spoke to one of those other men's wife who had also been in the camps. And she said, he never talks to me and he never talks to our children about it. So it was something they just did very tightly with themselves, these, these four men. Yeah. And then, of course, um, they started talking to me and particularly one of his friends, Tuli, was uh, yeah, just beautiful, beautiful old, old man who was ha happy to share some more stuff with me about his time too. And I was always happy to listen. Oh, to be a fly on the wall on that conversation. What a privilege. Oh, look, it was, the, it was the same cafe they went to every time. So the owner had known them for, for years and years. And um, it would just keep, they just kept the coffees coming. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was an incredible thing. And other regulars would come in and they'd all acknowledge them. And, and I could imagine, uh, I, I spent quite a bit of time with an elderly Jewish lady I know who attends each week a Jewish club in East London. And I, and I can picture it because when these women get together, the gestures... You know they're so expressive and there's a lot of this and you know they're all talking over each other but it's it's absolutely absorbing it's like watching a soap opera play out in front of your eyes so if there's anything yeah. like that i can kind of imagine the scene and the, and the gesticulating and the stories and the banter it must be one must have been wonderful to and you know it comes from them totally being able to trust each other that they can, this is their, our safe spot, even though it's in a public environment like a cafe. Mm. This is our safe spot. We can say anything we like here amongst ourselves. And I was very, very privileged to have been included in that as, uh, as his mates got to know me too. The whole thing has been utterly transformative for both of you and, and life-changing. And I would imagine, I cannot probably even begin to imagine how many people have been in touch with you since and how many potential stories yeah. you have been offered. It must be like a a, a dam um, breaking with stories washing over you how do you decide because it must be difficult with all these stories coming in and wanting to tell people stories how do you decide which which stories you can tell I mean I know a lot of it's to do with timing and so forth but yeah look, look a lot of them um Kate and, and you're right I get hundreds thousands probably thousands wow. I share a lot of them with with my publishers in particular um, and particularly if they are saying to me, look, would you, can you tell my story? And we get a little bit of it. The reality is for many of them, what they know is not a novel. It, it, it's a period in time. It's a, a short sort of window that they know about their family member, but there is not the backstory or the front story to be able to sort of make yeah. it into a novel. So then, of course, I say to them, either record it yourself, write it yourself, I'm not sure if you've had a look at the website that uh, the Bonnier created for me called Stories of Hope. No, I haven't, but I shall do. Okay, so on there, and this is where I say to many people who just write me a little bit, on there we invite people to write their story down. And this is just not about Holocaust. This is not about conflict. This is anyone who's been traumatised or had something tragic. The girl in the US who wrote to me so distraught because her 21-year-old brother, second year of medical school, walking down the street where he lived in Texas, collateral damage of a drive-by shooting, and he's now dead. How does she cope with the fact that her gorgeous brother, who had so much to give, is no longer with her? And, and she had found some hope in Lully's story. And so what we, we've done is invite people to write it down and send it in. It doesn't go onto the, um, to the web page. It goes to my publishers and there they see these and there have been times when they've helped people. Well, look, you want some editorial help to try and tell your story and just tidy it up 
and make this this story for you. Yeah. Uh, and that's been an amazing source of being able to help people. Just yeah. and, and often they just say, just writing it to you, knowing somebody else is going to read it has helped. That's so interesting. And as you're talking, it's dawning on me that in so many ways you're, you've become more than a storyteller or an author. It's, this has sort of become something like a global outpouring almost, isn't it, of people sharing stories and talking and and reaching out to you. But it's, it's much more than writing a book, what you've done. You've become like a global social worker almost. Tell me how that happened. How did that happen? I don't know how it happened, but and I'm just humbled by every single person who takes the trouble to write. Yeah. Um, you know, there's this 20-year-old from Milan wrote to me, gosh, it must be two years ago, just about this month, when he wrote to me, this young 20-year-old, uh, saying that he lived in Milan, he hadn't left his apartment for three months because Italy went into severe, hard lockdown very early on, you probably know. And during those three months, friends and neighbours and family had died all around him. Now, he wrote to me the day his fourth grandparent died of COVID. No, it was it the day I had to be the day after? Because on that day, he went to have dinner. He was called to dinner and, and he wrote to me saying, I told my, my parents I wasn't going to eat dinner. I wasn't going to eat ever again. What does it matter? We're not leaving this apartment. We're all going to die. His 16-year-old sister went to her room and came out with uh, Lully's story, the Italian version, of course. And she just said to him, read this. And he wrote to me, having not slept, while well, he read the entire thing. And he wrote back and he was just saying, having read your story, you know, your book, Lully's story, I know I will leave this apartment. And when I do, I am going to live the best life I can, not for me, but for all the people who have not surviving this pandemic. Wow. This is a 20-year-old. How interesting the parallels, well, not the parallels, because nothing could ever be as horrific as, as the camps, but, but drawing that slight parallel about, you know, being imprisoned somewhere within our home. Yeah, that's, that was his reality. Yeah, right then yeah. Yeah, that was his reality. And this is something I had to always tell my, my kids when they were growing up. They knew I worked in a hospital. They knew that I dealt with some really tragic stuff nearly every day. And uh, there'd be times when we'd be sitting around having dinner and, and my teenage daughter would be bemoaning the fact that, you know, the girls are being bitchy at school or the boyfriend's breaking up with her. And then they would start, they would stop. They would just, that's, and they go, oh, I'm sorry, mum. We realise there's people way worse off than we are. Um, and I would say, no, 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 no. You don't do that. This is your reality. You, you're not living Lully's reality. You're not living the reality of the people who I've just been dealing with today and helping today. You are well within your rights to, to look at your life and look at things that right now are not going right for you. Yeah, um, and that, that's so true. We shouldn't compare our stories to others. We're no. more entitled to grief or, or heartache than anybody else. Yeah. And I just wanted to ask as well, going back a little bit to what, what I said about, you know, where Lally said that you had to not be Jewish and you had to not know about the Holocaust, but I don't think I still understand, well, I think I have an inkling why, but why? Why did he not want you? You were a blank page, obviously. Why was yeah. that important to him? What did he think yeah. would have happened? Oh, for him, and um, this has been reinforced, by the way, by Jewish communities and synagogues all around the world who have spoken to me. For him, there could not be a Jewish person alive who was not touched by the Holocaust, either directly or sort of right. through their family. Right. And he was, how could they tell my story when they have their own? 
Ah, uh, okay, I see. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Of course, yeah. of course, of course they, because everybody would have somebody yeah, that have their own story. Yeah, yeah. And here's something which I'm just trying to sort of process a little bit too. I mean, I was take it you've heard of the um, American, well, she's a social worker uh, slash advisor, Brené Brown. No, I haven't. Uh, Brené Brown is this brilliant American woman. She's got all kinds of talk shows. She is all about trying to help people um, talk, show vulnerability through telling and talking about what's going on with you, that if you keep your secrets and you keep your pain, it doesn't help. So, And she's really brilliant in terms of how she helps people to be able to, to talk and open themselves up. You know, really, really good stuff. And I, I see her on her TED Talks. I've watched her. She's even got her own sort of show now where she talks about it and read her books and a huge, huge admirer of her. And it was only recently that I worked out that there's actually there's, there's just a little thing missing from Brene and what she's saying, and that is you've got to find someone to listen. It's not enough that you say, I'm in a position, I, I need to find someone I can talk to. Again, I'm not talking about somebody in the mental health field. That's a totally different thing. And so, we, yeah, we need to now also have another number of people there who are susceptible or open to becoming yeah, yeah. listeners. And that goes back to the point that we opened up with, that people need to hone that skill of active listening and, and develop the arts of it in order to be able to have the ears to, to absorb all these stories, because there are all these stories out there and painful stories that people haven't been able to, to verbalise, but with no listening ear ready to hear it, I suppose. So... Yeah, and I guess the other thing to that too is earning the trust so that anything you do tell somebody that if you say this is not gossip, this is not the common knowledge that they can respect that. There are things that Lully told me that have not been written down anywhere mm. because he specifically said to me, please don't, don't tell anybody that. Yeah, And so the other side of that, too, is you can't become someone who earns the confidence of somebody if they don't trust that you're going to shut up. Um, that, that, that's a really, that can be a sort of a double-edged thing, too. I got caught out once at, at, um, where I worked at the hospital uh, through that, that, that whole confidence thing, keeping someone's confidence. Yeah. It just reminded me, one of my colleagues, um, she was pregnant. She was having a baby, and everybody in the department were all happy for her. And then uh, she lost the baby. Now, when she phoned in to, to say that she was she needed some time off, she she'd lost the baby. She was twins. I took the call. I spoke to her. I knew about it. I advised the appropriate people that she was now on sick leave. But what I didn't do was tell any of our colleagues. And when she returned after about a couple of weeks, colleagues came up to her and people that we work closely with because in a social work department trust me you get to be pretty tired you get to trust people and they were coming up to oh so good to have you back how the baby's going oh and um, she had wanted me to tell them so she didn't have to field uh, those questions uh, okay i'm with you but, but yeah that one backfired on me yeah but you have been keeping your duty of care to her and, and not divulging it but in reality yeah that's an that's an interesting one where it tripped you off I suppose 
And yeah, um, sometimes people tell you something because they do want you to share it. Yeah, yeah. The, the trick is yeah. that I'm just trying to get my head around the thousand. I mean, it must be the thousands of stories that are poured into your ears. You know, the, the sheer quantity of information and stories that you've digested, and it's just staggering to think of, really. And 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 you're but you have a gift as a storyteller. You're not just your gifts don't just lie in listening. They actually lie in translating it to the page. Because I I was trying to think there have been obviously lots of books written novels set during the Holocaust, non-fiction books, but this one somehow hit the zeitgeist, didn't it? It took off. Why do you think that was? I I've been trying to fathom this, and I think that the, the storytelling is is beautiful and natural and heartfelt. Um, it's easy to relate to. It's not over convoluted. It's it's a story told in its purest form. Why do? You, but why do you think that this story just lit that touch paper for some reason? Because there have been so many. I mean, it's what sold over six million now, hasn't it? But something yeah. in that story. Sorry, it's over. It's actually eight. Yeah, eight. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's astonishing. I mean, that's absolutely astonishing. Why does it speak to us? What is it about that story? Over so. I've never people. written anything. Yeah, I've never written anything before. And the only way I knew to write was to keep it simple. Yeah. Keep the, the, the wording simple. As you say, don't get overcomplicated with it. And the thing that I hear and which I love hearing from readers is that you never left us in the horror and the evil for too long. Um. They wanted to turn the page because the, the academics and the historians have recorded, you know, the actual evilness of that period of time. And I'll, I'll just talk about Alfred Birkenau here. And you can get that. You can get that from other sources. But by telling one person's story, not the story of six million. Right. Keeping right. it simple. Um, and here's the thing, and, and it's, it's in life. This, is, this comes around in life too. We've got to have this, what I call, I'm about to kind of describe to you. I did decide years ago, because I wrote Lully's book as a screenplay, because I thought I can maybe learn how to write a screenplay. Um, clearly I couldn't, but I did write one. And I did do, had some online courses and some weekend courses. Of all the things writing a screenplay taught me, uh, it was the importance of constantly changing the emotional arc of your story. Okay. A comedy doesn't have you laughing for an hour and a half. Yeah. A horror movie doesn't have you on the edge of your seat for, for an hour and a half or two hours. You think about all the movies you've seen, think about the genres, and then think about how uh, good screenwriters and, and successful films in particular are constantly changing you from happy, sad, happy, sad, even if it's a comedy. Um, I'm with you. So it's levity, light and shade. Like Absolutely, and and that's the thing I look for when I'm when I am writing. Okay, okay, this has been going down too much. Time to find something to lift it out. I'm with you because so that yeah, I never really looked at that way. But you're absolutely right. You're allowing people to feel the horror, but not, but in a way that's bearable. You know, so that people reach the end. It's not an undiluted, you know, page after page of just undulating horror. And, and isn't that what life should be about too? Yeah, and, of course, of um, course. I don't only go and watch um, heavy drama plays or movies. I, yeah. I like the mix-up. Yeah. And in my own life, of course, we, we, we're living these lives and they are to be lived. Yeah. And they will be full of highs and lows. And yeah. you're absolutely right. We're a big bit in the middle. And, you know, people say, oh, have this whole word of being happy for your life. What's happy? I would have thought that was just a sort of a flat line hmm. that didn't actually help you at all 
live a full life. You don't want to flatline. We want to feel, don't we? We want to feel all the emotions. We want to laugh, cry, be surprised, be amazed, all of those things. Yeah. And, and one word's just coming out at me as you're talking. You, you're, a, you're a curious mind as well. I, you know, I guess it was that, that curiosity. Yes, got me into trouble all my life. <laughs> yeah, they got you the clap around the ear and mm-hmm. all the rest of it, but it took you to Lully's door. So maybe that's something else along with that sense of learning to listen, but also foster your sense of curiosity about life. It, that came from the only books I really had growing up. We didn't have access to, to libraries. This little school I went to had two class, three classrooms, and so books were not something I had a great deal of access to with the exception of one, and that was my dad who had insisted, and I know that my parents had to buy it in instalments because it was expensive. And um, I devoured time and time again the stories in Encyclopedia Britannica. Oh, really? Because I had no idea of the world outside of this small community I lived in. And to suddenly be found out about places like, you know, the pyramids and Africa and these, I mean, to me, that was just about, there's life outside of where you live, and I wanted to know more and more about that. So I was always drawn to. Well, you yeah. didn't have access to the local library, but that, but that no. encyclopedia. And isn't it interesting you say that? Because I've spoken to a lot of other people who say, "Oh, growing up, we didn't go to the library, but my mum used to buy Reader's Digest or the Encyclopedia on the Never Never. You know, she used to buy yeah. installments and read it. So it's really interesting you saying that as well, because it's reminded me of other people that have said that. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that, that's a really important point to put in as well, isn't it, about your childhood reading, where we learn where we learn about the world and, and make sense of it. The, lo- the world outside our own. Now, yeah. if you're not interested, that's fine too. I was yeah. interested. I needed to know. Yeah. yeah. Well, you certainly did learn about the world outside your own, didn't you, when, when you met? When you met Lally, oh, uh, I mean, your whole your world opened up dr- dramatically. So, what next, Heather? What are you What are you planning to do next? Because I suppose you're in a in a good position, I suppose, of being able to to do what you would like, mm. where you would like. What What can we expect next from you? Look, I, I've managed to knock out four books in four years, and uh, that's one a year I've done. I'm going to take a bit of time now to actually. Well, not enjoy is not the right word, but somehow just absorb and be part of these stories where they're rolling out uh, around the different countries and just, yeah, yeah, enjoy, enjoy what these books have offered me and brought to me, which is connections into all these other, once again, I'm getting to go into other places. I'm going to go for the first time in a couple of weeks into Romania. I've not been there before. I'll be in Romania. I'm in a, several other you know, European countries where I've been. I'll be back in Slovakia, back there in Lully's hometown, going to the town where the girls, the three sisters, uh, were born and raised. So I'm wanting to just enjoy all that and uh, and the books that's uh, going to probably come out in a year later. Yeah. That's um, being worked on now and, and researched, but not at the same intense level that I've done the others. Because you've been on a bit of a treadmill, haven't you? I mean, producing and, yeah. uh, and publish, writing, editing and publicising a book a year is a lot. You know, there's not much time off that treadmill, is there? So um... there's not, and and yes, I was locked down, and COVID prevented me from doing the physical travelling, but it hasn't stopped the the daily Zoom talks all around the place. Yeah, 
Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, they didn't slow down. The books came out. They needed to have that connection. And I'm really, really, really delighted about is that Lolly's book is on the school curriculum in New South Wales and Australia is that all schools, just not the, the private ones, but also the, the um, public ones, the whole state. How fabulous. How yeah, many other schools throughout Australia. So working with the education department in uh, Sydney and helping them by doing podcasts and videos with the teachers and the educators and now talking to schools. That's so I love it. I wish they would do that here in the United Kingdom. How I wish that because children, we don't learn about the past through dry facts, do we? Or, or statistics. You know, I, mm. I think about my history lessons and how I was taught, not not and it didn't engage me at all. But learning about history through stories, through the art of storytelling, the way that you have done it is absolutely the best way to engage young minds and to keep that story going and keep people remembering it. So it doesn't just end up in a dry, dusty archive. I wish that we would teach history like that here. I, I yeah, I think. Yeah, would. and look, there there are still yeah Holocaust survivors around, and uh, it's, it's a matter of get in touch with the nearest Holocaust centre and see available. Yeah. And here's the thing about many of those Holocaust survivors: they are now happier to talk as elderly men and women. And they find, and I know this through Libby and the girls as well, and other survivors I've met, that they're actually more comfortable talking to the strangers and to the kids than, of course, they are to their own families. They will reveal more to a stranger who they have no emotional connection to than, yeah. than they will to their own family. And that makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, of course, of course, because it's... Uh, no, I, I, I can see that as well. And that is so interesting. I heard this thing, uh, I, I was over in... Jersey researching um, a book that I'm writing set during the occupation where I don't know if you know but a lot of people in Jersey were deported to camps yes that was occupied country and one of them the the survivors had said he had not spoken all his life and at the end of his life he said the need to share overcomes the desire to forget and mm. I was really struck by that and I thought yeah I, I can see that because it's true you get to the end of the end of your life you're more you're confronting your mortality and then you realize I can't take that with me. I have to get this story out there. And that's almost a representation of that, isn't it? So there are, yeah. I wonder how many people out there are like that, like a cup overflowing, needing to share that story. I suspect story. more than we have any idea about. And, and, and look, at, and as you say, it's just not people who survived the Second World War. Look at the, the refugees that have now come into this country. Yeah. And um, one of the, the interesting things that I've just been considering, because a woman just wrote to me the other day, she lives in the States, but her, gran, her grandfather was a, a German Jewish man who fled in 1939. And she wrote me this long email, which I've only briefly responded to. And she raises the whole notion of, is there any difference between a survivor and a refugee? That's a great question. That the survivor has gone through the evil of camps and whatnot. The refugee, like her grandfather, he got out. He managed to get on a boat, get to his life, though, got turned upside down and he still lost all his family. And this one refugee survived by getting to South Africa and then to South America, I think it was, mm -hmm. um, but still was traumatised for his entire life from having That's to flee his own home. That's and a very interesting notion, isn't it? I, I agree too. Yeah. And I'm seeing now the next wave of the, the refugees now in sort of 20 years' time, and with COVID as well, because, you yeah. know, we lost more people in COVID than we ever did during the Second World War. 
you know, how are we choosing to memorialize and, and document their stories? That's a really yeah. interesting point as well. And, and his, um, I did a FaceTime live, no, yeah, live, not FaceTime, Facebook. I'm not very sort of social media for, for a lot of reasons, but Facebook live event about five weeks ago. And it was organized by a, a group called Penn International. You heard of them, they're the poets, essayists, and novelists, huge mob all around the world. Yeah, okay. they've, they've got more, they've got Margaret Atwood and Henry Mantel as their members, not, not me. Yeah. However, they reached out to me because my books are sold in the Ukraine. And this one particular person who works at Leave University there, an associate professor, a teacher of, of creative writing and writing. She um, had them reach out to me and find me and ask me, would I be in conversation with her uh, on Facebook that would be spread around the world? And absolutely, I agreed. Now, she wanted to talk with me about what she and other people in Ukraine, she's there being bombed right now as we speak. And she said, what we want to do is talk to you about how we can start preparing now, right now, for survivors. Oh, we want to look after our survivors, the ones who have fled the country with yeah. all the trauma coming from perhaps leaving husbands and fathers and, and, and the male members, uh, from those who have stayed in the country and are still there living under the, 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 the war right now. And, of course, she said, and, of course, there's that, it's that other category which we know is going on right now, and that is, of course, the sexual assault and rape of girls and women. So that country that is being bombed right now, there are a group of people there in country who are already planning to make sure, she said, that our survivors do not have to experience the, the decades of, of being ignored and not helped. Wow. I wrote about. So. That must have been so interesting. And I will try and look that up or I'll ask your publicist if I can find a copy of that. I would love to listen to that. Because oh, this woman is brilliant. She really is. And gosh, I admire her so much for what she's doing, refusing to leave. We're going to win this war, she said. And um, I had the chance to talk to her before we went live and, and also afterwards. And I was just in awe of what her and her other colleagues and this group of people there are doing to look maybe after the survivors right now. Maybe that needs to be the angle of the story, actually, because that's actually incredibly powerful. The fact that there is somebody there sitting there with, you know, her country's in tatters and they're being bombed and shelled and she's got the consciousness of thought to realize and reach out to you and have that conversation that that is what's happening yes and I'm sure she's right I'm sure we don't don't know I'm sure we've only touched the surface of what's actually going on there in terms of I'm sure there's genocide and god knows what else occurring there yes. right now so it's very um what's the word I'm looking for conscious maybe there's another word that I've heard to, to make that link between and reach out to you and and, and view their world situation like that because it is it is exactly and they are stories of the kind of survivors that will emerge from that will have similar tales to tell and it's how they deal with it um how they help to deal with that help to deal with it, yes. it the survivors of the holocaust have not been helped at all no and that that's and that will that would play into a lot of all that as to why people didn't speak for so long wasn't it because i know that i'm sure many survivors were not believed were they for so many we're not believed and not asked not asked yeah particularly when it comes down to the the, the uh, treatment of the girls and the women you can watch every show or tape there's fifty five thousand that spielberg's got and other testimonies and look at the questions asked 
and then um, you'll not find anywhere the, with, with the question ever asked, were you sexually assaulted? Now, why have we chosen to ignore that for 70 years? Yeah, well, quite why. And, and there's so much to learn about our attitudes and how we can learn from the way that, that that was so catastrophically mishandled and the way that we didn't believe and didn't listen. Yeah. So really the time to listen is now. Yes, more it is. Than, more than ever before. So I, I, that's what I need to make this, shape this piece into being about the, the urgent need to listen because these these events aren't consigned to the past. They're happening now, aren't they? They're happening in Ukraine, yeah. happening all around us. And so until we learn to listen, we're never going to be able to deal and process and cope with all that we have. All that we have. But well, I thank you, Heather, so much because I realise what a busy time you have and you've been very patient and answered all my questions. Oh. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for caring. Beautifully. Well, I do because I'm just passionate about what you do. And I I wish, in a sense, that there were more authors like you out there listening and and just presenting stories in a really straightforward, simple, emotional way that we can all connect to. Um, And yeah, I think it's time to start viewing life a bit more like that rather than what I can tell, what I can share. Needs to be what can I, how can I listen? How can I hear? And I think yes. particularly in our own family. So, and I think even if it makes people just think, oh, well, what about my, um, you know, what about my aunt that sits at the family party or my grandfather or my, you know, where, where, when will I start asking the questions? Because they're not going to be around forever. So the time to ask is now, isn't it? Yeah. How many of us have got what we always thought was the crazy uncle or, or the maiden aunt and, and wondered, oh, I wonder why, yeah, so that most basic stupid thing, which, Gosh, I used to hear it in my own family a lot about you know an elderly relative who had not. Wonder why they never married, um, you know? Yeah, and there's a good chance that they actually didn't actually fancy the, the opposite sex at the time, but that can never be discussed. Um, yes, yeah, you know, just silly, silly things like that. Yeah, all that slightly batty art that you know always people laugh about, but actually, what what's happened in her life? And I just you just reminded me of. I'll just tell you this very quickly and then I'll, I'll, I promise I'll let you go. But I was in, I interviewed this lady in um, who's in her 90s, fabulous, wonderful woman called Eileen, who lived through the Blitz in London. And I was interviewing her in a, in a supermarket cafe. And at the end of the interview, this man got up and he bashed the back of her chair and just walked off without, oh. I said, without a backwards glance. And I said, oh, my God. She said, OK. She said, I see it all the time. She said, when you're 80, you're invisible. When you're 90, she said, you might as well be dead. And then she said to me, I might have snow on the roof, but I'm not old. I've got stories to tell. And yeah. I've never forgotten that. And I think yeah. how true that is of that, that generation, particularly, isn't it? That, that we do tend to not, um, if I didn't even really ask you this, and, and I'm aware of time ticking on, but, but it does key into that issue of ageing and how we view our elderly, doesn't mm-hmm. it? And how we, is that, that's presumably something else that you feel strongly about, that we tend to, we are an ageist well, we do discriminate against the elderly. I'm not oh, absolutely. In most countries. But, but maybe if you can tell that elderly, elderly person's life is when they were a teenager, the age that someone is now hearing about, that's when I find that the teenagers in particular just relate so much to Lully and to the sisters. Gosh, am I hearing it from girls everywhere. They were just my age. This talk I was giving last night, and there was a young girl there, and I, I halfway through I said, "Sorry, excuse me, can I just ask you how old you are?" And she said, "Yes, I'm 15." And I went, "Okay." And this is your mom, and she said, "Yeah." I said, "We do not want to even think about you being Libby, who I'm just talking about, who was your age and what happened to her." 
I said, look, just take Livy's survival was her victory. It is also yours. All right. So now learn from her and the, her book. And she said, I already have. That's why I'm here. Well, how wonderful. How wonderful to hear that from a 15-year-old, how to turn up yeah. and sort of absorbed that. Yeah. Incredible. Oh, Heather, I could. I have so many questions I could ask you, but I, <laughs> I do need to let you get on. But I'm so immensely grateful to you. I really hope that you enjoyed that conversation. If you have any questions or comments about any of the topics raised in our conversation, or perhaps you have a story you'd like to share, then do get in touch via my website, Facebook, or Instagram. Details of which are all listed on the podcast. Thanks for listening.